Welcome to the Financial Planners South Africa podcast, a show dedicated to driving the positive evolution of financial advice, specifically in South Africa. To join a global community of financial advisors, sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Visual, interactive, meaningful, productive. Four values underpinning AssetMap, a financial planning platform loved by advisors and their clients. This episode is proudly brought to you by Alan Gray. They say it's important to live for today. Although that might be true, we can't forget to plan for tomorrow. There's a lot of it left, after all. Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. Visit www.alangray.co.za to learn how we build long-term wealth for clients. Good afternoon, David Garioch. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hello, Louis. How are you? Great, man. Yeah, so this podcast is all about the journey of financial planners, mainly in South Africa. So I thought it'd be great to share where you are at the moment, what you're doing, what type of clients you're working with. And then we can unpack a little bit about the more details of how you got into the industry and what made it stick that you're still here. So if you don't mind sharing where you are at the moment and the type of clients that you deal with and just give us a little bit more insight. Cool, absolutely. But firstly, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm very honored to be here. Um, I'm a huge fan of your work, as you know, and hello to all the listeners. Um, I hope that people find value from, from my own experience over the last uh, decade and some change in the industry. Um, where I am currently, um, I am a CFP professional I'm an executive at Alpha Wealth, which is a financial advisory business um, that's national. I run the Cape Town office, uh, which is part of my day. Um, and the balance of my day is a client advice uh, facing, sort of client facing advisor. Um, I've done a few qualifications. I did the, I did the, the typical CFP route, the postgrad at Mill Park, went f- through to the, the CFP board. I did the advanced uh, in investments and portfolio management at UFS, um, but found that largely, yeah, I guess, I guess average would be the, the adjective I would use there. Um, and yeah, prior to that, I had a, an undergrad in economics. Pretty happy where I am at the moment in terms of the firm and in terms of sort of the the progress we're making in, uh, in the advice space. Great. I want to spend a bit of time on wearing two hats. You know, so what you mentioned is the one hat is dealing with clients, but the other hat is also running a practice or the office in Cape Town. How do you balance those two? Um, it's actually more natural than you than you would think. I think um, there is a a self benefit. So if we if I run a better practice or if I'm part of a, a management team that runs a better practice, that comes through in my client experience and my client book. So I think first and foremost, my passion and purpose and like ultimate dedication is to the client experience and, and the and the client themselves. Um, so uh, it's almost like self-evident the better I am at helping the practice and fellow advisors that, that sort of are in our business, 
um, the more that that actually benefits my ultimate purpose of you know being a great client advisor. Um, so yeah, I get involved with a number of things like you know different operational things like tech and HR and finance um, at varying degrees and run with different projects. But ultimately, it's uh, there's a bit of a selfish purpose there. I, I kind of see that when I implement X thing, um, it will help the business, but ultimately, it will it will filter down to my own client book. Um, so balancing it is not an issue. Uh, there has been some you know crazy work weeks, and you know, I've done I've done the crazy hours, uh, weekends, and the Joburg trips to to get things over the line. Um, what I do aim to do is I do specifically spread out referrals so if i get a new referral from a either a referral strategic partner or from a client um, i will understand my capacity for the month and you know ask the client or the prospective client are they happy for me to see them in two three weeks time because the worst thing i can do from my perspective is i'm you know fanatical about client experience i would hate to drop the ball so early on in an engagement with a with a with a prospect um you know, you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, sort of building rapport and trust, and and that that early stage reliability, uh, I think, is quite key to 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 building a relationship with a client. That's interesting. You mentioned there that you're able and willing to refer clients out. Would that be outside of the practice, or would that still be within Alpha Wealth? Uh, uh, pretty much exclusively within Alpha Wealth, eh? And, and uh, really, only if there's something we don't offer. So I will, you know, um, so some of the advisors in my team that are building their books and maybe they're less busy than I am, uh, I absolutely do pass on leads. Um, when that does happen, though, I'm always conscious of the relationship element because if a client or a strategic partner of mine refers me a client, I know that they want me to handle it personally. So I will still attend the meetings, um, always attend the meetings just for presence Um and I will slowly transition the relationship across to the other advisor. Um, yeah, that's just really showing, I guess, respect to the fact that, um, and I guess we'll talk about it later, is that when a refer, when a client or a or a sort of partner, professional partner of mine refers me a client, there's you know there's there's a, they're taking a lot of risk in doing so. So I want to always treat it very very seriously. And um, but yes, yeah. I mean, uh, I train the advisors here, so I'm confident in their skill sets. And um, you know, this this simple, you know, the simple thing is up front that you can do to show reliability to a client. And as long as I'm always around and I'm visible to that refer referee, then yeah, it's been it's been pretty seamless. Eh? That really does speak to that client experience that you're trying to cultivate. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. What do you? Where do you get inspiration from designing a client experience? Is this something that you notice when you know you're going to a, a fancy hotel or dining at a great restaurant, or is yes. it just something that comes naturally? Uh, no, no. So um, I think the natural aspect of it, uh, I think it varies from advisor to advisor, uh, and I think it varies from person to person. Really, it's how attuned are you to the you know the multitude of data points that you receive when interacting with someone so i will i will i will pick up on cues as much as possible and um, which is difficult because if you're focusing on the client and what they're saying um ideally i would like to have my paraplanner or a secondary advisor in the meeting to actually also pick up on cues and then we can um we can i guess compare notes after the meeting to get a fuller picture of what the client experience should look like for that particular individual because every client is different and 
some things are more important to clients than others um, and we want to tailor that experience each and every time inspiration definitely comes from a multitude of sources and probably the one that i think is most um exciting and engaging right now is uh there is uh, i think they won the best restaurant in the world called it's 11 madison avenue in new york um and you can look up their their youtube video on how they treat clients i think it's a five minute video um on on the restaurant and in in the restaurant they have a dedicated staff that are called dream weavers that will do research on the guests prior to the guests coming through for their for their meal and then they will create dishes um you know for example the one the one example that they give is this family was visiting from overseas to new york and the waiter had because the culture in the restaurant is centered around client experience the waiter had picked up in conversation now this is the best restaurant in the world right so it's super fancy world-class expensive restaurant but the, the guy was saying, oh, you know, I've come, we've come all this way to New York. And the one thing we didn't even get to do is to take a New York hot dog, you know, from the street vendors. The, the waiter picks up on it, goes and tells the Dreamweaver. The Dreamweaver runs out into the street to go find a hot dog stand. And they buy a few hot dogs and they bring it up to the chefs. And the chefs, you know, cut it up all beautifully and decorate it nicely on a plate. And the next course that came out, they paused the whole service. And the, next, the very next course that came out was this hot dog and you think that how that centers a a feeling of um connectedness to the restaurant and the experience i mean that family will say that they went to the best restaurant in the world and maybe the you know the foie gras was amazing but no 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 no. but it'll be the fact that the waiter overheard a little anecdote and they are so so dedicated to client experience that you know they run out to go get that hot dog for that for that uh for that patron so like things like that i i I collect whenever i come across things like that i i'll collect those and draw inspiration from that and and think yeah shit that's that is the difference maker you know it's not it's not performance i mean we as you know i'm i'm very um i'm sort of very fervent on the fact that i have no control over the performance of a client portfolio that's for the asset managers to do you know it's um it's really the experience we we give them and, and that feeling of trust. And um, I've long believed that what we do as advisors is as important, if not more important, than what a family doctor would do for for a family. You know, um, and a client's ability to enjoy themselves is largely predicated on their their, their finances. You know, um, how they can spoil their kids or their spouses or their parents uh, or themselves. Um, you know, how they've you know, worked hard for 30, 40 years to build up a cash uh, pot, you know, and I, I, I always say that's a great responsibility and it must be treated as such, you know, and um, anything we can do to be very good technically, great, it's wonderful, um, but that can fall by the wayside if the client experience isn't great. If you don't give a good client experience to your client, they can leave you and then they can maybe go to a different advisory firm that may not be as technically skilled, but may have a, a, a better client experience. Um, and the client therefore loses out on that technical acumen that, you know, you're also trying to bring forward. So for me, it's really a client experience is number one, technical skills number two, but um, they, it's a close second. Wow, that's a brilliant story. You know, what strikes me is that for that restaurant, it probably didn't cost them much to send someone downstairs to a hot dog vendor. So these are the kind of things that we can incorporate in our businesses if we share 
the same thinking around client experience at you know at a reasonable cost just to create what Seth Godin would call a kind of a purple cow experience, right? A really remarkable yeah. thing that clients would talk about for many years in the future. Yes. No, and I mean, I mean, can you imagine again? It's um, if you I'll, when you, when, I, when I talk about two hats, I talk about kind of my purpose hat, fulfillment, what fulfills me as an individual. But then I always talk about the commercial hat, and sometimes the commercial hat might come across as um, cold. But if you think about the amount of press and referrals to that restaurant that that family would then make, you know, so the cost of that hot dog. $10 or $20 versus that family going back to wherever they were from, let's say they're from Europe and telling all their affluent friends that if you go to New York, the one place you have to go to is 11 Madison Avenue. You know, you think a, a small investment of attention plus $20 leads to however many tens of thousands of dollars in, in revenue. Um, so I often say that because for me, the, the purpose hat, the fulfillment hat is really about, um, you know, I, I love what I do and I'm very lucky to do what I do and, and to enjoy it as much as I do do, do enjoy it. But it, it serves you commercially to be highly attentive to detail and highly you know, conscious of the client's um, experience of your service. Um, it actually serves you commercially. So um, I've often sort of said, uh, a previous like mentor of mine said, just do the right thing and the money will come, you know. So I don't really focus on the revenue personally, which is obviously easy to say 10 years into a, a career. But um, I would say to any young financial advisors or financial planners that are listening that, you know, doing the right thing and being earnest and, um, and chasing the delivery of a great client experience will almost always result in a commercial success down the road that's so true i think you know the the revenue comes over time mm. if you are in the game long enough yes and you know maybe true. that leads us into talking about how did you get to stay in in delivering financial advice given a great experience for the last 10 years like everyone has a story where things have gone really south and it's quite difficult to stay in the industry yep. so i'd love to just you know, hear what your experience has been in South Africa in the financial advisory space. Yeah, I know it's um, bumpy. You know my background. It's, it's it was definitely all over the place, um, and it's hard. Eh? I must say, there's a very difficult uh, space to get going. Uh, I started in two thousand and I think it was Feb two thousand and eleven um, when I got my first uh, when I first joined the industry, and. Um, you know, we can rant about this in terms of uh, the profession, the financial advice profession needing to stand on its own two feet, separate from the product manufacturers or the product providers out there. So um, I joined in 2000, I think it was like late 2010, early 2011. And the the company I worked for was in a large insurance company um, and a tired agent. You know, I was waitering at the time. I had just finished my BCom. I was still waitering. I uh, didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, had no clue, no direction. My parents are accountants. Um, I did a BCom in economics, so literally no no link to accounts there, other than a couple of modules in finance here and there. Um, I looked. At, I actually applied for a job at uh, Department of Energy in Pretoria. Just completely random, no clue, no clue what I wanted to do. My mom lived in Joburg. I was still in Durban, um, and a friend of mine who was waitering at nights was a financial advisor by day, which I mean. For me today, that just sounds 
absolutely asinine. Um, but because it was commission only, that's what he had to do. Yeah, you know, it was commission only. You know, so if he wasn't selling policies, he had to wait her to pay his bills. And yeah, I mean, it was it it were I was twenty three, I think, at the time. Uh, yeah, I didn't know any better. So uh, he said to me, "Oh, come, come, come to this insurance company's uh, franchise, and you know, sling it." And I had I was just like, "Okay, whatever." I just I, I just fell into the industry completely uh, out of chance. And my very first day, so I got the job. I mean, surprisingly, it's amazing. It's amazing. I got a license and a job, and I was this twenty-three-year-old waiter, you know, with a with an undergrad. And I mean, to the right now, as you know, I mean, I won't go into too much of a rant, but I just it, it offends me. It offends me that I was allowed to give advice back then. Um, but uh, you know, without any training, there was no formal training. It was just pure um, sales. So I get put in this position, and, and the very first. Uh, meeting I have with the managing director of that firm, and there was maybe 20 brokers there, was to draw up a list of all my friends and family. And I'm going to go up to them. And she gave me one line. She said that people who love buy life insurance, you know, she said, go, to, go, to, go, to, go to all these people. And I remember thinking to myself, damn, man, that's never going to fly with me. Um, it's just never going to fly because my, I'm very transparent and my friends and family will see straight through me. Um so I joined, I was in this fr- franchise and, and um, I've always been pretty good with people, you know, um, you know, the waitering actually did help a lot on that, on that basis. So I was always, I was always comfortable talking to people. Um, and, but I decided to not do that. I didn't, I didn't go the friends and family route. I basically just cold called, eh? cold called for the, f- the first like six months, just cold. I was still waitering, but cold calling as well. And um, managed to, you know what I mean, phone 100, get 10 meetings, sign one client. And uh, I did that. I, I mean, I, I walked the street, the, the, the CBD of Durban, you know, um, and, you know, canvas buildings. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just a lot of grind, a lot of, uh, a lot of, I would say, hard work, not smart work. But no one was training me. There was no, you know, other than, other than the insurance company themselves on their products. So we were this little force, this little broker force just going out there um, very well versed in one product and had a very simple little F&A Excel tool. And I was just telling clients that they, you know, boom, they need this product and why this product's benefits are better than the next insurance company's benefits. So I wasn't doing much investment um, other than the occasional retirement annuity, uh, recurring premium retirement annuity. But again, um, you know, that's, the, the commission and the and, and the sales targets uh, was all on life insurance sales. So I kind of, I kind of bumbled along hey for about I'd say about nine months, nine ten months where I was convinced at the time because this particular insurance company is great with their marketing and their broker consultants. You know had had us had us very like um very convinced that was this was the be all and end all of products out there. So um. Uh, when I say I was successful, I mean I was I don't know, selling a, a policy or two every month. I was and I was getting by. You know, I had enough to get by, still live my life, pay my pay my bills, and carry on. Um, some, you know, the rocky road was, you know, some months I would be I would have a lapse, and then I'd be negative. I never forget. I would I forget the month, but it was in that first year. Got a cold, uh, you know, got a prospect through a cold call. Signed up a policy the very next month. A, a competing agent went there with their product and kind of undermined my product. 
they reversed the, they canceled my product and put the new insurance company's product. And I had a 17,000 Rand lapse in the very first, in that, in that, so it was my first experience of a lapse at the time. And I started the next month, let's say it was October. I started October with negative 17,000 on my commission code. And I remember sitting there thinking, how do you, what do you do now? I mean, all the work I do in October will be to pay off, you know, what I earned in September. And, and that was one of the first moments where I was like, no, 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 this doesn't make any sense. Eh? This makes no sense that this is, is this a profession? Is this, an, what, what am I, what are we doing here? Um, and, you know, in the good months, uh, and I can, I can imagine there's some young listeners on this uh, podcast, in the good months, you feel like a king and you've done well and you've made 20, 30 grand. And um, now you, you know, you're having fun and going to restaurants and top of the world. But, um, yeah, when those lapses come and, you know, I, I wasn't giving advice. I was I was selling product. And, um, yeah, it, it, it made me pause and... You know, a few months went on uh, after that. You know, I managed to dig my way out of that issue. Uh, a few months went on, and I remember thinking, you know, this particular product. And I, I remember thinking, there's so many products out there. How, how come this one is the best? You know, like how, how can how can this product be the be all and end all when there are eight other large insurance companies and countless other asset managers out there? Um, and I started to question, you know, the whole independence thing. So. I then started interviewing and I was very, very lucky to land a job at a, at a private bank. And to this day, I still don't know why they hired me because I was maybe one and a half years of experience. I left, I left that insurance company's um, franchise after about 14, 15 months and I joined this private bank. I mean, again, I have no idea why they hired me still to this day. <laughs> um, green as grass, but I guess I, I guess I carry myself well in interviews, and uh, they needed a they needed a guy in between the wealth managers and the bank brokers. So they needed a guy that could do the life insurance for the clients of the private bank because the big wealth managers of those private banks didn't want to do that kind of business, and they needed someone to do the recurring premium investments. But they didn't want to send the um, they, they they just wanted someone in the private banks, not not the not the branch guys for whatever reason. And I remember joining them and all of a sudden now uh, I went from one insurance product to nine insurance products because it was the private bank was independent. So there was no tie to any one particular product provider, which is what I wanted. I wanted to be independent. Um, and now at the time, again, you kind of gravitate to what you, what you, you know. So I just got stuck into the detail and I, and I attempted to, I attempted to understand all nine companies products, you know, back to front. So I had broker consultants coming in and out of the bank every week. And yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was just far too much. And one of the things that I remember very clearly, and this is, we can talk to me almost exiting the industry was at this time is our, uh, same at the bank also, no, no salary. Um, they gave me a little loan. I think the loan was like, I think they paid like seven and a half grand a month basic for six months, you know, um, and then I had to repay that. And um, now all of a sudden I went from being very confident with one product, extremely confident. And, and it's a, it was an early realization. I was like 24 or five that actually confidence uh, sells, you know, unfortunately, because you can be confident with all the right intentions for the client and all the right skills, but you can also be confident for yourself. And you can also be, as, an, as a broker or an advisor, you can be confident 
um, and highly convicted where your goal is maximizing your revenue and not the client's interests. And clients will never be able to pick up the difference. So they just look at you and they go, oh, you're the expert and you're telling me that this is the right thing for me. They won't know your, your heart uh, in those early engagements. Um, and I went from being ultra confident to not confident at all because all of a sudden I didn't know which was the best product. I couldn't, I couldn't make heads or tails of what to do. And I realized at that time, and obviously I'd, I'd known about the CFP program, you know, since I joined the industry, but I remember at that time that I said, I need something to hold on to here that I can say is my, this is my value. I'm, I'm bringing value in, in this domain. Before it was, I'm an expert in this insurance company's product, um, and and I believed so so you know wholeheartedly that it was the best thing for the client. Uh, that was shattered the minute I became independent, completely shattered, and I realized that my value was not to be a effectively a broker consultant who would see clients. Uh, my value was now I needed to actually give advice and be a financial planner and, and be skilled in those areas, but I'd never been trained, never. Not, not a single session on that. The only training I'd ever received was product-related training, which is, you know, I think, a, a big problem for the advice profession. It's great for the life insurance companies and the product manufacturers because they've got an army of, of brokers selling their products, but it's not good for the profession of advice. Yeah, completely floundered. My sales plummeted. I had this loan to repay. And it was kicking my ass. Um, and I was very fortunate to have my older brother cover me because I, I went to interviews. I went to an interview to be a broker consultant at that same insurance company. I went to a trading platform uh, for an interview. And I, I was like literally a smidge because all I, I just needed a, I needed a basic salary, 10 grand a month. or gave me something just to cover my costs because I was literally at, I would say my, my parents, unfortunately, aren't um, financially well off. But my brother's always done very, very well for himself. And um, I went to him and I said, listen, I'm, I'm enrolling in the CFP program. The bank's paying for me to do the program. I believe that there, there is a future for me here. And I need to stay in this private bank because it is great for my CV. Um, and I just need to get over the next sort of two years um, somehow. And then he covered me for like, he like covered me for like, I want to say like six to nine months, you know, just, um, you know, very generously. And uh, it kept me afloat. And the more I replaced my value proposition with technical skill as a financial planner from being a technically proficient product reseller, the, my confidence started to grow again, you know. And, you know, if you spend enough time in a, in a bank, you know, you start to develop relationships with the uh, bankers and the lenders and the stockbrokers. And the lead flow does come. And I was lucky that... Sure, I could breathe because my brother covered it was my stopgap, and um, and I was doing my CFP, and I was I was I was bringing those skills into my meetings now each and every time, and and I was lucky. I started. I had a for the first year and a half. I didn't. I had a, a sales manager um, who was not a financial planner himself, and then he he was replaced by a, a very technically skilled, um, you know, advisor. You know, uh, that was a head of the fiduciary division at, the, at a point. And he was a very, very good wealth manager and advisor. And and I was lucky. So I, I'm talking about like maybe three years into my career now. I'm like 26, maybe 27. No, I was about 26 then. Um, and uh, this guy took me under his wing and, you know, made me do all the grunt work 
which I hated at the time, but you know, I look back in hindsight, which was great. And um, just taught me the ropes of how to advise clients. Um, and it was about advice, eh? nothing to do with product. And um, he was the, you know, he was the guy that was helping me translate my kind of like weekly, newly formed financial planning skills out of the CFP, out of the postgrad at Millpark, um, into real world um, client advice. And I was still in commission. You know, I had paid off that debt and I was still living on policy sales, you know, from time to time. But it was becoming easier and easier because I'm three years into my career. Um, I'm getting, I'm fortunate to be getting, I have built rapport with, you know, centers of influence in the bank and I'm getting a couple of leads here and there. Still not making, shooting the lights out, but I'm doing enough. I'm doing enough to, you know, live my life and keep my head above water um, and pay my brother back and all those things. And, um, yeah, I slowly started to form my value proposition as a financial planner. So still not, I would, I would say still not a holistic advisor yet. Um, but as, okay, cool, I can do the math and I can find you the appropriate products to deliver on that math. Um, and yeah, I mean, when I say I was inches away from leaving the industry, I'm, I'm not joking. I was in interviews. I was in interviews at anybody who could give me a salary. Um, and I look back and I think, sure, I would have, I would have really regretted that. I would have really regretted leaving, you know, considering where I am now. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I guess, you what, do you want to hear about the, the balance of my moves? I mean, those, that was really the crucible. Hey? I mean, it was touch and go for a good year there, a year and a half. Um, you know, from there, it was great. Uh, from there, my mentor and who, who you know, was the regional head of advice, you know, saw that I was progressing with my CFP and he put me onto a small basic salary. And all of a sudden now I had a salary plus um, I was servicing, you know, the recurring premium needs of the of the private bank's clients and their life insurance policies. So the revenue started to roll. The revenue started to come in. Again, I'm not talking hundreds of thousands or millions or anything. It was just coming in and it was covering my costs uh, as a, a from a personal perspective, but it was also covering my salary at the bank. So they were happy. Um, and I was just ticking over, um, and I went from strength to strength in that case, you know, and again, from there, you just, now my confidence was around, you know, being a financial planner, you know, and, and we can talk you know, later in my life and, you know, my late twenties, early thirties, and now I'm 34, you know, um, my value proposition is, I think evolved to a point that I'm very comfortable with. It's not so much the math anymore. It's not even that it's, it's really, it's, uh, it's the client experience and underneath that, knowing that. We at our firm, and at least at my desk with my team here, um, we are striving to be the most technically proficient advisors we can be, you know, at a global best practice perspective. Um, but that's been, you know, I would say to any aspiring young advisor or financial planner, um, you know, find your find your passion and find your what you believe in, and and hang on to that because that value proposition um, is really what will quote unquote sell you to the client. Um, and help you help you you know generate revenue and you know unfortunately you can't do anything in this world without revenue right you can't even stay in the industry if you're not making money you can't stay in the industry you'll get fired or you'll have to go somewhere else to to find a find a job um but the first three years is the toughest i find the first three yeah the first three years i'd say if you can get over that hump you know and you can get into the cfp program i would say that you get through the first three you know, years four and five are still tough, but from years five onwards, um, 
look for mentors, look for coaches, listen to podcasts, you know, find Louie on LinkedIn <laughs> um, and yeah, you should be okay. Yo, what a, what a journey you've had to get here. Yeah. And you know, the things that stand out for me is like what you just mentioned that how, what a difference that mentor made in your life mm-hmm. and what actually just your own internal focus how that change brought about you being able to change in the industry. You know, the things around you didn't really change, but it was your mindset. Because oftentimes we feel like, hey, I'm I'm not in the best place. I just need to move to another company or I just need to be remunerated differently for, for that to be able to change. Where you actually took the other approach to say, what can I change internally? And then, you know, still stay in the same place, but actually grow where I am because you know, sales skills aren't necessarily a negative thing. It's just no. how they are applied in the industry. Yeah. And 10 Correct. years ago, there wasn't a lot of paid para planning jobs on the market no. that we can step into because I was in the same boat. So we started out at the same time. And it's, yeah. it's nice to see that there are financial advisors that could stick it out. And I want to share and echo what you're saying. It is tough. It's tough. And surround yourself with the the people that can support you be it financially or emotionally or intellectually so that you can get to a point where the client becomes the center focus i want to shift a little bit to you know you mentioned that you're moving away from the technical and more kind of into the experience and we've unpacked the experience but i know the technical part around your planning is world class and i want to unpack a little bit the kind of things that you're doing in terms of retirement income projections for your clients because that's something that i know you and your team have a great passion for if you don't Mm -hmm. mind just sharing with us a little bit your thinking around what is missing with the traditional income projections that we give our clients and how your approach is different yeah no with pleasure yeah the 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 i believe that um a great client experience you know sits above technical skill but uh, you know, without the technical skill as a pillar, you know, you, you're not going to give a good client experience, right? I mean, you can't do a back of the envelope, back of the cigarette box financial plan and pick a fund and, and hoy. Um, and, and yes, maybe you have a great client experience, but you, the, the technical skill is, is fundamental to us. Um, and uh, I've got a particular shout out to Brandon Else with every designation under the sun. Um, advisor in our team who's particularly academic in the space and, and I've piggybacked off his you know, insatiable appetite for research um, in building out our process. So ultimately, if we can squeeze out more lifetime income for a retiree, you know, is that a better experience for the client? Absolutely, right? If we can squeeze out more life for a person, and when I say life, I mean an ability to enjoy their life through the proper use of their money, um, you know, to quote uh, Dan Ariely, the behavioral finance guy, um, you know, then we are going to deliver a better client experience. Uh, they, when we can show them that they can sustainably maintain a level of spending uh, through us optimizing um, their retirement income strategies. So when I say optimize, optimize things that we can control. The things that we can't control, we can't, right? The things we can control, you know, I would go to that Vanguard Advisors Alpha series, um, anyone's listening on on this particular topic i would really highly recommend it's probably the best thing i've read in many a year it's called um putting value to your value which is a 2016 uh sort of 
quantitative analysis on the seven areas that Vanguard put forward as to where financial advisors can add genuine alpha. So we call it advice, or they call it advisors alpha. So we, we contrast investment alpha for the asset managers. They look for alpha above the benchmark or whatever benchmark that they, that they measure themselves against. For advisors, I'd say, well, you know, there are several areas that we can tangibly control to squeeze out more uh, return. And more return or more efficiency means essentially more capital and income for a client over their life. And I think that's really you know, going to generate a better client experience. So what we do is just read everything and listen to all the podcasts we can. So Steve Sandusky and uh, Marco Kitsis and you know, Kitsis and Carl and all of those podcasts. And, and you know, they'll, they will interview guests and we'll, you know, we'll pick up on a guest who's written a white paper and we'll find a tool online and we've, We've looked at everything, you know, the you know the life-centered financial planning with Paul Armson and Mitch Anthony. We, we love that as well. Um, so, yeah, there are people that have come before us and they've done the work. Um, you know, so one of the one of the one of the gentlemen that we you know read a lot from and and use his tool is um, Abraham Wakasania from the Timeline app in the UK. Uh, we are yet to find a cash flow modeling tool that is anywhere close to being as good as that tool. Um, it's inexpensive. It's They've got SA focus, so they've got SA sort of data in terms of asset classes and, and inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I would say that where the industry falls short is that the bulk of the financial planning tools, even new tools that I currently review, you know, a new tool came across my desk recently and I was asked to take a look at it by my CEO. We're still using deterministic modeling and the difference between deterministic modeling and, and Monte Carlo simulations is that is that deterministic modeling is assuming a linear return profile. So if you plug in, I expect the portfolio to do inflation plus five, and then you set your inflation assumption at five percent, and then you say, well, five five plus five is ten. You're just assuming a ten percent annual return in a linear fashion, which is every single year for the the entirety of the term that you set. So if you say client retires at sixty five and dies at ninety five. So for 30 straight years, you're going to do 10% Vanama. I'd love to find a portfolio that can do that and sign me up, please, with no volatility. You know, it would be wonderful. You know, I'd use that for every client. But it's just that's not reflective of reality. So whenever I do any modeling, the, the phrase that I use with training para planners and advisors in Alpha Wealth or just with my clients is that I want to get to as close as being reflective of reality as possible. So we know that returns are lumpy and they come at varying wonderful times and we can't time the markets you know it's a proven fact you cannot time the markets um so what timeline allows us to do and there's many there's many monte carlo uh, simulations out there i mean i know that uh, portfolio metrics have a wonderful tool in wealth explorer in their cash flow modeling um sort of uh, tab in, in in their in their very cool um sort of wealth explorer tool for advisors um but why we like timeline is that they will take certain retirement theory from the world's best thought leaders on the retirement space. So Benjamin and Kitsis and Professor John Garton and a whole bunch of guys. I think, uh, I don't know if, if I'm mistaken here, I don't know if Blanchett's rules are there, but they, they will, they will, well, that tool will allow you to toggle things like, you know, for example, 
there's one rule called the Garten Inflation Adjustment, which you can set on the actual cash flow model. So you're modeling out that client's income draws against their portfolio for 30 years or 40 years or whatever it is. And current tools in South Africa will only allow you to put in a expected return and it's linear. So every single year, from year one to year 30, every year it's 10% phantom. There's no volatility input, so you can't put the standard deviation of the portfolio in, which is just not, it's not sensical and, not, and it's not reflective of reality. And then you kind of set a annual increase on the income. And it assumes that incomes increase for retirees every year at five or six percent or whatever assumption you've used, which is just which is just it's just contrary to the research. So Timeline and Abraham Akasanya of Timeline put out a recent white paper that really just proves, you know, the data shows, and there's hundreds of thousands of, of, of retirees that were surveyed in in uh, in the US that retirees spend less as they get older. They spend less. So the kind of thinking is they spend at inflation minus one for the first 10 years of retirement, inflation minus two for the second 10 years, and then back to inflation minus one for the last 10 years. And that little uptick, you know, t- typically is in healthcare. But even that is starting to be debunked. That even even the the healthcare increase, uh, what they're showing is actually being crop subsidized by the activity decrease. So it's, Activity is decreasing, the spend thereof is decreasing. So that's being taken up, the slack of that is being taken up by the increase in, in, in healthcare at, a, at the older, so the 85 to 95 you know, decade of, uh, of life. Um, so where, where timeline is wonderful is we can say, well, we know that what is the closest to being reflective of reality? So we can say we can put in Garten's inflation adjustment, which, you know, it's a slightly different rule where it says, in the years where the portfolio is negative, no increase on your income. And that's a rule that most clients can come, can really, can really wrap their heads around. You can say, okay, Mrs. Client, if there's a good year and the portfolio is up, whatever, 1%, 5%, 10%, whatever it is, we will give you an inflationary linked increase. Um, if the portfolio is negative, we won't give you an increase. Is that okay? And then I will overlay that with the, 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 the sort of the data that shows that you probably won't need an increase anyways, you know. But in the, what we're saying, in the years that you do have a positive return on the portfolio as a whole, you'll get an increase that's inflation. And what the Monte Carlo simulation does is it runs a thousand simulations, a thousand scenarios of possible return outcomes and return sequences. And that's why the standard deviation input is so important. So I'll go into the portfolio metrics, uh, portfolio construction tool, uh, just Obviously, all the listeners can know that we use portfolio metrics as our preferred uh, asset advisor slash DFM and model portfolio uh, provider. And the tool allows us to pull a net expected return when we build the portfolio and gives us a expected standard deviation of that portfolio over the long term. So we will um, put those inputs into timeline and it will run a thousand scenarios and it will say, what is the percentage success rate on this retirement plan? How likely is this client to run out of money and or succeed in retirement? And, and sort of global best practices between 70 to target a 70 to 80% success rate. So we target 80, just yeah, a bit more on the conservative side. And um, the higher the success rate, the more capital you need, essentially. So you can commit more capital to increase that success rate or you can decrease spending. So we run with a couple rules there. So we say, well, what are the things we can control? We can't control the expected return. We can't control what we expect. We can control asset allocation, so we can go higher equity in the hopes of getting the risk premium and that higher return. But
but that can also go against you, specifically in the first few years of retirement. So, you know, some of the listeners will maybe be familiar with the sequence of return risk that a retiree faces as they retire. That risk is greatest in the first five to 10 years of retirement. Now, we think that because those risks are very, very real, we want to take actually what we call minimum effective risk. So I don't know if this is Dr. Wade Fowle or Larry Swedrow that talks about minimum effective risk, but one of the two of them do. Um, I think it's actually Swedrow in Safety First, his book Safety First. Um, now, if we know that an increase in risk assets is uh, no guarantee of higher returns, especially in the short term, you know, the data will show you that in the long term you should get higher returns, which is true. Um, but in the short term, we run we run the risk of a bad sequence up front. So in the first few years, the client's portfolio could be, you know, a, a good example is I had a client retire in January last year, however many millions. I put the money in the market. In March, he was down 15%. I had a client retire in, I think, like May, June last year. His first year, he's up like 30. So you know, a matter of three, four months difference between their retirements and uh, you know the, the the that first initial sequence as to when they start drawing from the portfolio is is hugely different. So they they are out of those thousand scenarios, those two clients are on two very different paths. And the way that I adjust client A versus the way that I adjust client B would be very different. And the way that I can m mitigate the risk for client, both of those clients, because I can't, I would never know. No one knows when the crashes are coming or when to time the market. So the way that we mitigate that is what is by taking the minimum effective risk to make the financial plan work and get to that 80% success rate on the retirement income strategy. The things that we do before that, the things that we can control are how much capital do we contribute? Can we delay retirement? And can we employ what we call a dynamic withdrawal strategy? And um, Timeline allows us to deploy or employ a, a dynamic withdrawal strategy because they've got this very cool advanced settings feature. And that feature, you can toggle, I think it's like five different inflation rules on the annual increase and five different spending rules, you know, where you can, you can, really, you can really customize uh, the portfolio's cash flow model. Um, and, and those are the things you can control. So if I tell a client, same, if I say, well, you know, the, you're at a 62% success rate. The only way that we can get you to 80% is either by delaying retirement, you know, and hoping for a, a good market sort of performance over the next year or two. Um, you can increase your capital that you contribute to the plan, or you can decrease spending. Or in retirement, you can have spending flexibility. So using guidance inflation adjustment, you can not take an increase in the years where the, where the uh, portfolio is negative and you'll see how that improves the chances and sustainability of the portfolio um, one question i'll just answer because i'm sure people always think about this they say why 80 and not 100 and the clients ask me all the time the reason why you don't go for 100 is because the, if you have a 100 success rate it means that in none of the scenarios even in cuck scenarios even in scenarios where the portfolio is doing awful you still got you're still going to make your retirement age of 95 or 100 or whatever it is that means on the reverse, it means out of you know, 999 of those 1,000 scenarios, the client is dying with extra capital. And again, is that the proper use of their money for them to die with extra capital? Now, if you've carved off the legacy requirement for the family and you've, you know, you've, you've got contingency portfolios and emergency funds, and now this is your retirement income pot, its own separate need that is there to generate income and capital for your enjoyment of your retirement, 
The last thing I want is clients to die with extra money. I want them to maximize spending and maximize lifetime income. So uh, how do we do that in a sustainable fashion without them running the risk of running out too soon? So we target 80%. That 20% differential is not a 20% chance of failure. It's a 20% chance of having to adjust the portfolio. So if you're in those first 20% of scenarios, and I, we'll see it because we look at the tool and we update the figures and we when we do the client reviews, we know where they are. You know, we can track where they are and we can see that success rate drop below 80. Now we start making tweaks. And when we make tweaks, that's when we can get them, but we can keep them on that on, on track. Because I actually took a snippet. Hold on a second. I took a snippet. I'll just read this to you. This is from the white paper that I read the other day by Abraham uh, from Timeline. Um, it's a very good little quote here. So... Um, this is from Bob Danhauser of the CFA Institute. He said, um, retirement portfolios can fa fail us in two ways. Firstly, living cautiously might leave too much on the table when our money outlasts us. But spending too much can mean running out of money before we run out of life. For me, the first one is what's pertinent. Everyone's worried about the second one. Everyone is almost too conservative. Everyone's ready, worried about running out before they die. I get that. I 100% get that. But you, the math can help you solve for that. And your and your ongoing advice and wealth management services to your client will help you mitigate that risk. The bigger risk I find is, again, as he says here, living cautiously might leave too much on the table when our money outlasts us. So you can do a financial plan and say, if, if you want to live a certain way and whatever's left over, you can go to your kids. Or you can say, I want X, X amount of money to go to my kids. You can actually carve that out. But I want my clients to, on the retirement income goal, we have five different goals that we target for our clients and retirement income is one of them. I would love my clients to, you know, pass away with zero left in that bucket, you know. And yes, the legacy is taken care of and emergency funds are taken care of and that's all still fully funded. But the I want the the retirement income to go to zero on the day that die. That's I would have done the best job possible because they would have just enjoyed their lives. They would have maximized their happiness uh, and I would have been part of delivering that for them. Yeah, and it's what strikes me is that how brilliant this is that you're actually showing them the value that you'll add in the future by putting them in these scenarios to say, hey, Mr. Client, Mrs. Client, when there's a severe market change negatively or positively, these are the adjustments that we'll make and this is how it's going to impact because oftentimes as an advisor you struggle with you know displaying the value that you'll add in the future and it's more about you need to enter into this ongoing relationship so that somewhere in the future we can provide you with value whereas you shifted that to the inception of the relationship saying let's commit to this now so that when it happens we'll be there to assist you and this is the impact that it's going to make because we have the software and the tools to show you. Mm. Yeah, I like Timeline because it's quite visual. So uh, so we use our, our kind of tech stack and planning at the moment is Excel, uh, Portfolio Metrics as Wealth Explorer tool. Um, for really two, the two main things we use are the, the financial personality assessment, uh, which is quite cool, and the portfolio construction tool because we, we need those expected return and expect to send deviation numbers out of their, out of their model portfolios to put into timeline, and then we use timeline app. Yeah. Um, 
it's it's they're wonderfully visual. So Timeline and Wealth Explorer are quite visual, so it's easy to show a client that without getting too technical and bombarding them with too much technical detail. And most clients can look at a success rate of 80%. And once I explain to them that by going higher than 80, you run the risk of having too much when you die uh, and not enjoying your life enough, uh, they get it. They get it. And there's some great little, there's so many great little images by, you know, um, Carl Richards uh, and Kitsis, uh, Michael Kitsis on, um, you know, the, the one that I like a lot is the, the three phases of retirement from 65 to 75 is your go-go years, from 75 to 85 is your slow-go years, and from 85 to 95 is your no-go years. And again, I want my clients from 65 to 75 to really, you know, live. You know, they've still got the energy and the appetite to travel and spend. And, and um, you know, I've, I've got a great story of a, of a client of mine who's my chiropractor and done very well for himself. And his wife was his receptionist. Uh, is there still, he still practices a little bit. And um, he had never worked with a financial planner. He had, he had worked with, um, you know, a, he had worked with a, a broker. Um, or more product-oriented advisor. And it was always about markets, and you never understood. They're talking about the markets, he, just, he said, yes, he, he just looked at the guy, and he was like, oh, great, well, whatever you say, man. I mean, yeah, the, the, the guy worked for a reputable private bank, and uh, he was just like, cool. And he was referred to me by his son, because I work with his son, he's a, he's a wealthy entrepreneur. And um, and I didn't know product, eh? I just did planning. just did planning with him. So let me show you the math. You know? And I took him through timeline, and... I remember his wife telling me once when I got there for a meeting um, that he just doesn't spend, just doesn't spend, got all this money and doesn't spend. And he's still working, still working hard, 75 years old, but a strong, a very strong 75. And his wife is 65. He, and she told me, um, you know, we'll walk, we'll walk in the waterfront and she'll say, oh, let's stop for a, for a, for a coffee. And he'll say, no, 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 we've got coffee at home, you know, because he, he was, he was terrified of not running out of money for himself. He was terrified of running out of money for her because she's 10 years younger than him. So I spent time with him and, and, and obviously I managed to communicate that. So, so she was a little bit upset because he would never spend the money on her. But I would tell her, no, no, he's doing that so that you don't run out because you're younger by 10 years. So he wants to make sure that you're taken care of. So obviously, again, um, we talk about um, optimizing for risk and optimizing for costs and optimizing for tax. So those, these are the things we can control. Um, but for me, one of the more rewarding um, little anecdotes of my career in the last year at least was when he we moved everything across the portfolio was fine he was in a fine portfolio fine funds everything was fine but it was not it was nothing was geared towards any financial plan it was it was really just risk profile plus product you know um, and very you know cut and paste um, and then when I did the planning and I showed him that he had like a 98% success rate at his current income draw I was like you know we, could, we, can, we can live it up here we can push up push up your spending and maybe a year later i think i started working with them in 2019 a year later uh, through the crash and everything again there was conservative portfolio they still had a pullback but you know we've got ways to mitigate that um he phoned me and he said oh you know um his wife has been driving the same car for 10 years you know can he afford to buy her a new car and and this is you know this is a proper feat for this man you know to to spend and um, and I said, cool, give me two minutes. I went into the timeline tool, put the purchase price of the, put, I updated all the values of uh, his portfolio, put the purchase price of the car, phoned it back and I said, no problem, man, buy the car. And she was so chuffed. Eh? She sent me a photo, the big smile of the car, and she was 
so overjoyed, you know, to, to, and again, that's power. Hey, that's, that's for me again, I talk about the commercial hat and the purpose hat, you know, that really fills my sense of purpose as an advisor. And yeah, at the same time, I mean, she always refers me. She refers me to her friends all the time, you know, because her experience has been, here's an advisor that is not just sitting there talking figures to them in fact sheets, which really, I, there's, there's no place for me really to be doing that. I should bring, if I really want to talk fact sheets and figures, I can just bring the asset manager to the meeting. Um, but we talk about the planning and, and their lifestyles, you know, and um, unpacking the things we can control, their estate planning, their taxes, you know, their spending habits, you know, um, what's realistic long term. And we believe our process is closer and closer, uh, more reflective of the real world. How will people actually spend? And that's why we read everything we can on spending patterns or retirees. And, and then how do we reflect our planning? You know, it would be it would be actually prejudicing our clients to assume an inflationary increase for the rest of their retirements. And again, we want to be client first and we want to maximize their happiness and through the proper use of their money. And yeah, that's, that's really, it was, that was a nice one. I, I really enjoyed that. And, um, and, and the tools help us get there, hey? you know, and yeah, I think, I think the essay, the essay space is, uh, limited in the tool sets. Um, and we've had to kind of custom build our own little stack, you know, um, and we've had to, you know, uh, Brandon's had to build out uh, Excel tools for us, you know, um, to fill the gaps here and there. Um, and, but we're very comfortable with our process now. We've been running it for about two years and it's very, very comfortable with where we are and the advice that we give on the back of that math. Yeah, I can't think of a better client experience that experiencing an advisor that actually cares enough about you being able to enjoy your money versus the advisor that would have walked in 10 years ago, having to convince someone to actually buy this product, which is the exact opposite. Yeah. And in South Africa, we tend to spend so much time around, oh, only 6% of people can actually afford to enjoy retirement and spend their money. But you know, the reality is the type of clients that we often see sits with the exact opposite problem around not having the permission to be able or giving themselves the permission to enjoy their money after a lifestyle lifetime of saving. Yeah. A lifetime of sacrifice. Ex- yeah. A lifetime of sacrifice. Mm. Yeah. And that, that's when and I talk Brett about Davidson Sorry? talks about kind of helping the client see that they're okay and showing them that mm. they're okay. And, yes, very much you know, so. it seems like you're including that in the practice brilliantly. Yeah. yeah no, no, thanks. Um, yeah, and I, like I said uh, earlier, uh, that responsibility should never be lost on an advisor or a para planner or anyone in this industry. Is that, you know, if this was your money, you know, and you ha- and you had no idea, you don't know any better. I mean, you go to the doctor and you trust that they're going to do what's best for you. You know, the pharmacists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, that you must respect that. You know, and I am, I am fiercely passionate about that. I don't, I don't care about the sales. I do not care about the brand. I care about the clients having a wonderful experience and enjoying enjoying their uh, their money to the fullest and in a sustainable fashion, and that has led me to financial success for myself personally. Um, yeah, uh, and, and again, this is where I want to see the profession go. The profession needs to go that route where um, you need to be technically skilled, you know, um, and you need to be hyper focused on helping clients maximize their happiness. Again, I keep quoting Dan Ariely here, but through the proper use of their money. And proper means, you know, 
technical skill, fee minimization, tax minimization, risk minimization. I understand that very, very well. I, I want to see more paraplanner roles out there in, 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 in the IFA space, you know, where the paraplanners get trained. I mean, I'm training my paraplanner at the moment and, and exposing her to the skill sets, but then also exposing her to how we treat and talk to clients at a coaching level, you know, which uh, I come to you for advice on all the time. Um, and uh, yeah, the more, the more we can do that, I think the more we'll push the profession in the right direction. Thank you, David. I can't agree with you more in terms of the role of the paraplanner and the future of financial planning and driving that role as a fiduciary, putting our clients' interest ahead of the product providers and the companies that we work for. As we wrap things up, where's the best place for people to get hold of you if they want to have a discussion around financial planning or just any of the tools that you mentioned today? What would be best? Uh, from our perspective, I'm pretty good on LinkedIn. Um, I do get people reaching out to me on LinkedIn and I'm, I'm always keen for a coffee or a, a catch up over Zoom or whatever. Uh, I've got an intern at the moment um, that I see um, who reached out through LinkedIn. Um, that one ends, he, that's, he finishes up in the end of May. So anyone, any young guy who's keen or young lady who's keen to really learn more or who's passionate about the industry, I, I'm, I'm always open for coffees. So reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's David Garriock, which is G-A-R-R-I-O-C-H. Great. Thank you so much for being here. We'll put a link in the show notes to all of the white papers, software, your LinkedIn profile that you mentioned today. Sure. And as you know, this is all about pushing the future of financial planning in a positive evolution and you and your team are definitely doing that. So I want to commend you for the work that you've done on behalf of your clients and the industry. And we'll definitely have another session where you can explore some of the other areas that you're working with. I think there'll be a second part pretty soon. So cool. thank you, David. Uh, thank you so much. I'm very honored and privileged to be on your podcast. Uh, and uh, thanks to the listeners for listening. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.